Hello and welcome to the Virtual Clinical Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Sunderland, and together, alongside my nursing students, I bring together my friends and colleagues in an effort to answer the questions, provide mentorship, and oftentimes help other professional nurses along the way. Hope you enjoy these episodes. Welcome to episode two of Bonus Virtual Zoom Clinical Sessions. Today, uh, we have my friend and colleague, Kevin Gardner, joining us. Kevin is a clinical research trials manager um, at a hospital. We won't say names since it'll be public thingies, but I'm basically going to let him run the show because that's what he does best anyway. Um, he likes to raise his hand in the middle of our conversation sometimes and, you know, just kind of like talk amongst yourself, but also this is, I'm Kevin, I'm going to talk for everybody. He's laughing right now because he knows it's true. Um, but Kevin and I have known each other for uh, eight years. Eight years? It'll be eight years this fall. And I'm going to let him share the story about how we met. And then I'll let him get into things like why he became a nurse, why he became a nurse research trials uh, coordinator, and then, you know, management and all that stuff. So I'm just going to let him run the session. And if you guys have questions, just hop on in and, and, and ask them. Because he's, he's done everything from emergency medicine to um, council work, which is, which is kind of like where I met him, and we'll get to that in a minute, um, to then going into trials coordination, and then has this really unique perspective on what it's like even walk, walking into an ICU environment, walking into a floor environment, and how all of those kind of pieces play together in the trials research world and patient care. So I think it's a really nice opportunity to like learn from Kevin um, because of, of his uniqueness and where he's at right now with his career. So without further ado, Kevin, let's start off with how the heck you and I met. Take Absolutely. Uh, good evening, everyone. Um, so Nicole and I met in LA uh, 2012. Um, we were there for the Magnet Conference and we had, there was an ask of us, what well, was an ask of me to go get Hershey Kisses. So we were celebrating our redesignation uh, that year and kind of our little our Hershey throw that we gave away was little Hershey kisses well there was an issue with getting the Hershey kisses um, delivered to LA something happened in transit so we had like two hours to figure out how to get a lot of Hershey kisses to throw around to 5,000 nurses very quickly so middle of LA I'm getting ready to go to find um, candy by myself and then Nicole raised said, I'll go with them. So two absolute strangers went running out of the convention center, hailed a cab, hopped in and said, we need Hershey kisses. <laughs> and the guy's like, I know where to go. <laughs> and then off we went down through middle of East LA trying to get these, um, these little candies for everybody. And the guy's like, I'll wait for you. I'm like, please do. The place had bars. It was not like the friendly welcoming of places, but we run in there and grab all the Hershey kisses we could find. And we were like 10 people in line. At least that's how I remember it anyway. Like we were like all the way back with like our hands just full of Hershey kisses. And people were like, your hands are full. Go ahead ahead of us. And, you know, we kind of like jumped the line a lot. And they were like kind of asking why we were here and why we were buying Hershey kisses. And we kind of told our story. And people just thought it was like the coolest thing in the world. They just kind of let us line jump to buy what must have been like a million Hershey kisses to go darting off to back to the conference, threw our candy around, 
right after that uh, session, we were all going to Universal Studios, I believe it was, to um, for the big uh, reception. But neither one of us had a chance to change into comfy clothes or shower or freshen up. So Nicole and I just ran up, got quick change, met the lobby, met each other up, and sat on a bus for what felt like three hours to go like six miles. Yeah, because we were in Los Angeles traffic, which was the best ever. Super sarcastic. <laughs> so not knowing each other, Nicole and I um, just started chatting. And to find out we're both uh, Philly kids and we just hit it off and became best friends. It was like a little three-year-old saying to a three-year-old, do you want to be my best friend? And the response was, yes, of course. Especially on a, on a three-hour bus ride. We're like, yeah, we're, we're best friends. There's no going, going away from that. I think Kevin still has me in his phone as this picture with these weird glasses, these weird 3D glasses that are like above my face from that night. So that's uh that's quite a while ago too, which was awesome. I, I think I also probably look pretty desperate carrying about 45 bags of Hershey Kisses to the line to get checked out. <laughs> I think people just felt bad for us. Like, oh, they need chocolate. Yeah, they should just go and just kind of adventure back to the conference. Bad souls. Yes. And that's where I learned that nurses do run on coffee. There was like three Starbucks in the entire area to support 5,000 nurses. And the line was incredible. I think uh, it was a two-hour wait each morning to get coffee. Yeah. And even in the hotel. And we were just like, no, like I'll go without it or I'll find some other way to get caffeine in my system. People woke up two hours earlier than they needed to just to get coffee. So always know what your coffee options are before you get there. That's true. So Kevin, why did you decide to become a nurse? Um, you know, it's really, it's kind of an odd story. Um, I was actually, at the time, I was in high school. I was looking at actually becoming an engineer. Um, and my, I took five years worth of math because I was going to be an engineer. So Sophomore year, I decided I was going to be an engineer, took all kinds of crazy math, f did physics, and had myself all lined up going into my senior year to start looking at schools. Um, well, I started to look at a few schools junior year, but senior year was like, I kind of had a big list of where I wanted to go take a look at. And then I just didn't feel like really passionate about it. And I saw an advertisement of all places in the movie theater where I was working at the time while I was cleaning up popcorn off the floor. And they were advertising they were hiring nurses i'm like huh i could be a nurse i like people um <laughs> that was what led me to become a nurse or how i got to nursing school anyway um what really kept me going the whole entire time of nursing school was just doing those first interactions with patients and just you know being able to interact with someone even just for a, a few hours a day you had that connection with them you know, you developed a professional rapport and you kind of got to know each other a little bit and you try to make that person's life a little bit better than where it was when you first got there. So in an eight hour day, 12 hour day, you try to find, you know, you basically find your way of making this person's life a little bit better than it was when you first arrived. Um, that was kind of, it's not really super glamorous or anything fun like that. Um, but to me, that was why I kept yelling with it, you know, even the ups and downs of nursing school. It's like, you're so stressed out, you're constantly 
nose in a book. Um, and just like, why am I even doing this? You know, I was even dual majoring in nursing and political science all through college. So it was like, what am I doing? What is this really going to pay off for? And why am I um, getting passionate? Just the appreciation and the so making someone's life a little bit better, you know, promoting health and wellness for someone over the course of an eight hour shift and then to jump into those 12 hour shifts. You know, it's like, oh, I can do this. This is no problem. And then you just kind of keep that burning, you know, of like, yes, I can, I have this, you know, vomit doesn't really gross me out. Blood doesn't gross me out. Un, unattached appendages kind of freaking out sometimes, but I can deal with most things. But, you know, it's, I can deal with that. There's only certain people in the world that can deal with that kind of stuff. And those are nurses and those who get into the healthcare profession. And it's just a unique way of doing things. Um, at one point I was considering going back to become a physician. And when I kind of got started, I was like just really heavy into the sciences, redoing science courses to get a full year of biology and a full year of chemistry. Um, and there just wasn't, this wasn't, the, there was no fun in there. And I really kind of sat back and thought about it. I'm like, you know what? I kind of like what I'm doing with nursing. Like I have a great lifestyle and I have these really meaningful interactions with patients. You see the residents, the physicians, and you know, they only have this small period of time to make it interact with the patient and make a change for the next 24 hours. And they kind of just keep moving on. To me, that wasn't, that wasn't for me. That didn't jive with who I was. I think that's so true with a lot of jobs too, that we often see them in different lights. Um, and I know that I mentioned this last week with viewing different roles and stuff as equal opportunists, because it might not be the right role for you, might be the right role for you in terms of like what you like to do in nursing. So I, I think that kind of resonates with last week's guests as well, and then kind of translates to you, Kevin, kind of knowing what you wanted to do, but then not knowing what you wanted to do, but then saw that your 12 hours serving a patient was a lot better than four hours of cleaning a popcorn, let's say. You know what I mean? Like doing something simple might, might have seemed ideal at the time, but it really wasn't meaningful and impactful and had a really nice, you know, cohesive, like, I feel good about this, you know? So what what did you start off as at, as your first job as a nurse? So, yeah, so my first job as a nurse um, was working in the emergency department of um, uh, a level one adult and pediatric uh, trauma center. So you kind of saw everybody, you know, my first few days on the floor orientation, you know, I had a six hour old child born at home that had some complications and a 96 year old. So it really kind of just, the first day you just kind of like saw the whole spectrum of patient care. Um, I did that for just over two years. Um, that was kind of my uh, full-time gig, kind of figure out where I, you know, saw myself in the world and kind of scoping things out. Um, over the course of time, then I got into the, oh, I can't remember what it was called now. We had, each unit has its, had its own uh, uh, councils that kind of took care of different areas. Um, the, the basic ones were quality of work, life, education, uh, practice council. And in the emergency department, we had one extra. Um, it was something along the lines of practice council. There was kind of a split. It was kind of very ill-defined. Um, that's kind of where I first got involved with things. And it was just a giant bitch session. Like people came there with their complaints and I was like, this was kind of garbage. So my first day of this council, uh, basically I was asked to be the vice, the co-chair. 
I'm like, I've been on this council for two hours, but sure, I can be the co-chair, vice chair, whatever they called it back then. And I'm like, sure, dandy. Uh, my friend at the time was the chair. I'm like, okay, I can deal with this. You know, he's in, he's been out of school for a year. I've been or a year longer than I had. So I'm like, well, if you can do it, I can do it. You know, kind of give me a year to get my this under my belt and kind of understand. Within 24 hours, he had resigned his chair for some unknown reason. So now, after being on council for you know three hours, basically, I was now this this practice council chair. Um, and then over the course of time, we kind of merged in with the practice council and kind of had a more of a more clear role what our expectations were. Um, and one of the first things I did was, you know, and one thing that kind of drives me nuts is getting on to getting into a meeting and having no real clear agenda and no path forward. The idea of a bitch session was just such a waste of time. So I implemented something that we had done when I was in the Boy Scouts. Um, it was kind of a way of saying, these are what we're, uh, roses and thorns. What's, what are we doing well and where are we not doing so well? And this way, the idea behind it was you just couldn't say something negative. You had to say something positive. So that's one of the things they implemented very early on when I took over as chair. And I've always kind of kept that in place. And it's kind of developed who I am as a nurse and as a person and a leader today is, you know, you just can't come to something with a complaint. You have to have some kind of positive thing to bring to it. Whether it's, you know, you can't say, you know, we're killing patients left and right, but by the way, Nicole, you have a very pretty sweater. That doesn't count. That's not on the same level. The idea was, you know, if you had a patient, you know, we have a waiting time for our patients. It's way too long. What if we try doing X, Y, or Z, coming up with some kind of a solution and kind of starting the, the process? And you know, these meetings went from you know just kind of torturous because people just complained to really having the focus of this is the concern. How do we make this better? We became very solution focused, um, not problem you know problem focused. Um, you know, you kind of figure out what the problem is. You need to address that piece, but. Then you have to figure out how you're going to get you forward. You just can't spin your wheels and not move yourself. So that's kind of where I kind of started off with some things. Then I realized that one of my other requirements as a chair was to update our practice manual for the emergency department, which can be a very daunting task. And a lot of our department policies were kind of what we called advanced nursing guidelines. It was a way of us getting things started on patients before a physician saw them. So based on certain symptoms, you could start executing certain pathways for patients. So if it was gonna be 10, 20 minutes before a physician even got in there, you could actually get, you know, someone coming with chest pain, you put them on the monitor, you got the chest x-ray ordered, you, you know, you drew troponins, drew the labs, ID started, you know, all those kinds of things that were, you know, that's considered no brainers. We kind of had the authorization to do it. And it was, you know, you had a scope that we did this in. Um, and that's kind of where I got into research. Because it was this idea of we have an issue, it's not the best way of doing it, but how do we keep moving forward and not just you know rubber stamping things, saying, yep, let's keep going. It was looking at the research, looking at the evidence to support the way we're doing things. And is there a better way for us to do things? And actually under my tenure, we actually increased the number of nursing um, protocols that we had because it covered more areas that we were consistently seeing patients for that we didn't have to sit in this, you know, time loop just sitting there waiting for someone to come in and write orders we kind of propose them this is what the evidence says we're going to do it anyway your practice is that the evidence supports that so let's go ahead and just implement this now for nurses and basically have a written you know pre-written order for patients that had certain diagnoses um in the context of that 
you know, I was one evening, I was just kind of like, had a later patient load for the time being. So I just kind of started diving into some of the protocols that we were working on and going through all the evidence. And one of the docs asked me what I was doing because, you know, I didn't have Facebook up at the time, of, you know, when Facebook was still allowed on the computers. And I, you know, I told them, oh, you know, we're doing this review on the practice manual and trying to find evidence support, you know, doing this and kind of explain what I was doing. And he goes, after about an hour and a half conversation about just life in general and things, he said, you know, we're looking at hiring a research coordinator for emergency medicine. You should apply. Um, so with just about two years of nursing under my belt um, with nine other candidates, they ended up choosing me to be their first research coordinator in emergency medicine. Uh, and that's kind of where I got my start at. Um, for various reasons, uh, you know, being grant funded, I ended up having, the job was closed because there was no more funding for trials. It was right at the end of the recession, um, 2008. So we weren't getting any new trials in. The kind of the NIH funding kind of reduced down. So there was no new work to come in. So I went back to the emergency department and was a floor nurse. And 15 months and 16 days later, I was in my um, in a new role as a research coordinator again for the um, cardiovascular department. And then from there, six years later, things happened to be the way they were and grew as a, now to be the manager of the team. And it was that kind of idea of looking at what we're doing and asking why are we doing it this way? And is there a better way of doing it? Just kind of changed my whole entire perception of what a nurse does or what a nurse, the idea of a, what a nurse should do as you know, nursing roles to into a job where I'm very passionate about what I do. So Kevin, what made you switch from emergency medicine though to heart vascular? Because those seem like totally different realms. And especially with like, like I, I understand, you know, research coordinator might be the same sort of like thing, you know what I mean? But like, what made you switch from emergency medicine to heart and vascular? Not saying that you didn't have any cl clinical trials going on. What was that thing that, you know, said like, you know, I'm done with emergency medicine. I think I'm gonna try heart and vascular now. You know, what made that switch? Uh, so I guess my passion has always been in cardiovascular. Um, when I was doing trials in the emergency department, it was things were either MI trials or neuro trials, like stroke and um, traumatic brain injury. Um, this is where I disagree with nursing with, or with Nicole at, is neuro patients scare me. They don't do what they're supposed to do. They'll say, hey, I'm doing great. And then they'll throw a switch and just crap out on you. I don't like that. <laughs> Monica, like, this is my jam. I love it. I like the heart and vascular patients. They kind of just, you do what they, they do what they're supposed to do and you kind of can predict what's going on. Um, so it's kind of like a no brainer for me because that was the part of nursing that I, I enjoyed. Like I didn't mind doing the, the chest pain workups and those real medical sick patients. Um, I wasn't too into the, you know, the guts and glory of trauma. Yeah, it was kind of cool once in a while and the stroke patients stroked me bananas, but I really enjoyed the cardiac patients. Um, and there's just that I just kind of, something about just, award me to it um so it was part of it was the opportunity was there when i tr transitioned from the emergency department uh back in the research to go to the heart and vascular but i think it's just where my passion has been you know kind of looking at my career at different times you're like you know do i need to re-evaluate my track and go into another field like oncology is a major place to do um research all the time um outside of the hospital pretty much works, pretty much divided up as to oncology and non-oncology. You know, that to me, there was no passion there for me to go into oncology 
Nothing about it allured me, was alluring or looked sexy in any way, shape, or form. Heartfire seems sexy to me, and EP sounds sexy to me. You know, all those things are fun and interesting to me. So I'm all about that, and understanding the nuances of, you know, the different types of heart failure that are the eyeballs out that, you know, that are renowned specialists that kind of take care of these patients. That was where the interest was. So that's kind of where I got my, like, the research was always fun. That whole piece was cool. But that piece of the cardiac care was really where I just found my passion at. I'm glad someone likes all the heart failures because I think you and Paul are the only ones I know that are super passionate about heart failure and like the heart stuff and just like really passionate about it, like beyond compare passionate about that stuff. And I think my students, if all the wrong would agree that he's just like, he's here with it. That's okay. It um, takes certain types for different people. <laughs> it does. You know, I, I have a student, Selena, who's not on with us, but she took two semesters with me of clinical God bless her soul. But she wanted to become a neuro nurse, and I believe she's going to do that in Texas. If I think if they allow movement and stuff into Texas, and I don't, I don't know what it looks like right now. But I believe Madeline uh, wants to try out and be an ER nurse, right? In Delaware, she took a job um, at a hospital in Delaware. So do you have any questions, Madeline, for Kevin before we kind of switch gears a little bit? Uh, I guess my biggest thing was I don't, like, I have a passion for nursing, but I'm not really sure what, so I think that's why I was like, oh, the ER, I'll see a whole bunch, a whole bunch of ages and a whole bunch of diagnoses to know maybe more what I want later on, but I feel like my biggest fear is, like, the trauma side of it. I've only had, like, 36 hours of clinical experience in the ER because capstone got cut short, so I think I'm, like, scared of that aspect. No, I can understand. Um, I think my total ER experience in college, or all, we'll say all of college, basically was one shift where I got to um, shadow someone for eight hours. Um, and we ended up taking care of a woman who had fallen and like broken her hip and was covered in her own feces. And we spent a good hour and a half just cleaning her up. So it wasn't like a huge, like guts and glorious things, but you really kind of see the compassionate side of nursing. And you kind of learn a lot of tricks to things. Um, so one of the things I learned early on, I'm gonna go off a slight tangent, which I'm very good at doing, is if there's ever aromas that you just can't seem to get over, there's always extra coffee lying around every nursing unit. Put the coffee grounds in a cup and just kind of put it like behind the bed or in a um, emesis basin or whatever. And the coffee grounds will start absorbing all that smell and give you a nice fresh smell. So lesson learned for every nurse. You can hide most smells. <laughs> um, so I only had, and prior to, after that, or prior to that, I should say, I had a pre single episode um, and I'd gone to the ER and everything was fine. It was just kind of like a, just a weird incident. Nothing came of it. So in total, I probably had about 12 hours in the ER prior to me getting into the ER. But I knew I wanted to be an ER nurse like that's what I knew I wanted to do um so if nothing else just kind of having that gut feeling like you can have a strong sense of what you want to do um will totally kind of guide you there um a, a friend of mine is a, a hospice nurse now after our one little um stint in um our senior year 
we were with hospice nurses and she's like, that's what I want to do. I want to be a hospice nurse. It's kind of one of those bizarre things to think about, but she just thought, just saw the beauty in caring for someone in their final days and months and giving them the highest quality of life possible. So just you know, having that gut feeling saying, I think I want to do that, definitely a great option. Just follow it. Worst case, it's not going to work out for you and there's new opportunities. The cool thing with the ER, um, you take care of that massive age range. So you'll figure out what you want to do. Maybe you do want to do pediatrics. Maybe you do want to go um, do geriatrics. Or you really like the um, taking care of the psych patients and they're kind of coming in like wild animals because they're in that manic phase or they're in the, having psychoses. And that's kind of where you bring in that idea of saying, you know what, I want to be a psych nurse. Not where I thought I would be, but you know, it gives you a great opportunity to taste everything. It's kind of like the buffet um, of nursing. You kind of get a little bit of everything. A really good um, way to put it, Kevin, buffet of everything in nursing. I think in my experience with trauma, there's really not going to be a moment where you feel prepared for it until you get to see it day in and day out because it's such a shock factor, especially when it like first happens to you. So I would say like be mindful of those experiences too, because they can certainly have a long lasting connection with you that may be positive or negative. And hopefully it's a positive experience when you experience trauma for the first time. I mean, it's not a negative thing, but I think there's going to be a lot of things that, you know, that will happen in the ED. But as long as you have the support system as well behind you, when you take your first job, I think in the ED, I want to say that everything should be as good as it can be. You know, there's things you're not going to be able to prepare for, right? But I think, you know, for me, when I first saw my first trauma patients, and I didn't see them in the ED, but I saw them coming up to my unit, you know, that was like, holy crap, I can't believe this is happening to somebody. How do we fix this? And sometimes you can't, and sometimes you can, and you can kind of fix them, you can kind of chip them off. Um, but there's certainly things that you don't expect to happen that I think will happen. So um, does that help a answer kind of your question? In a yeah. way. Okay. And what I was thinking about was, I was like, when we were doing the practice CPR and I was like, so out of breath. And then I was like, okay, I'm going on the treadmill starting today and I'm going to start getting more cardio. And so in that, so that I could do this. So now I'm literally running every day outside, like trying to prepare myself. I'm like, if I can't do anything, I have to be able to give CPR for a while. Like that's exactly right. Kevin, you yeah should have been there but I, we had this like cpr session with the mannequins and my students had to give like actual cpr and they like, test it out with that computer system they use yes and madeline was like so out of breath and she's like how am i gonna, how am i supposed to do this oh real people <laughs> i'm like worried i'm gonna have to like tell people to switch out like quickly so the i'm gonna go to trend left this to run go work my cardio all that stuff <laughs> it, was, it was the most hilarious virtual <laughs> clinical session I've ever held in my life. Because they were like, holy crap, this is going to be real in a couple months. How am I supposed to do this? You know what? I had to do um, CPR on a mannequin a couple weeks ago for one of those like quarterly things. And kettlebells have actually helped significantly with doing that for, for whatever reason. I'm not sure what it is about kettlebells, but they keep your butt so much that I didn't feel as quite of out of breath as I normally would. And I'm somebody that like worked out like all the time. 
but I would still feel like out of breath. My biceps would be dead tired. I would need like 12 Gatorades after I was done doing this stuff. Like, mm -mm. and then somehow it's, it's helped a lot. So you try that too. I don't know, but yeah, that was, that was hysterical. The whole group was like, oh my God, I'm not going to do mean? I'm not doing it correctly. What do you mean I'm, I don't have it in the right, in the right mm -hmm. place <laughs> So I've done more than my fair share of codes and it took me quite a while to actually have my first code. Um, I've seen many patients come in in cardiac arrest. That was like, that was nothing. Um, but to actually have someone who's one minute of talking to you and the next minute, all intents and purposes, is dead, that freaks you out. But that training through ACLS and BLS kind of just kicks in and you don't think about it. Um, but what I've learned is, and they can always tell who the ER nurses are when you go to recertify, because um, we'll get the bed where we want it to be and then we'll go to town. Get your hips up above the patient, so your fulcrum, and that just, you kind of use your weight to, to like almost bobble up and down on their chest, giving them that full recoil, but you're using your body weight to help you do that. Otherwise, if you're just forcing your hands up and down, your muscles in your arms are very weak, but using your leg muscles and your um, core muscles to help kind of almost bobble, for lack of better terms, like you do it. I mean, I've seen nurses literally hop up on the bed, the stretcher, and are kneeling knees against the patient, going to town on the chest to get their um, the CPR in. Obviously, you want to make sure you get that person's up off the bed before you shock them, but that's what you got to do. Because at the end of the day, your your goal is to get this patient alive again, and the high quality CPR that they ram it into your skull, really the highest. Uh, quality CPR is going to, compressions are going to save the patient's life. But yeah, running good cardio is going to help, but it's not giving you that full adrenaline rush of like, oh my God, this person's actually dying in front of me. Like this has to stop. <laughs> that definitely helps out a lot. <laughs> I, I think you also bring up the point. I don't know if I discussed it with my students or not, but when you experience your first death as a real nurse, like as an RN, it's a heck of a lot different and when you experience it in a clinical setting, I don't know why. I don't know if it's because like you're not with your clinical group, you don't have a group to go back to, you're not you don't have like your clinical instructor there or your or your professor to like ask questions to. It's kind of like you by yourself at that moment, not by yourself with coworkers, but in in essence, it's kind of like you by yourself because you're not in that realm that was protected before. And that's not necessarily like a bad thing, but it can be a really big jolt. Um, to experience that and experience a loss. Um, I remember when I was an extern at a different hospital, I remember my first death, like it was yesterday. I don't think I'm ever going to forget it. But I remember this person being fine at the beginning of the week. And by the end of the week, they were just not themselves and they were being put on hospice and then they died. And I'm like, what do you mean? He was healthy a few days ago. Now, I don't understand. So I think there's a lot of a lot of knowledge to take into, a lot of pathophysiology to learn. That's probably the number one thing is keep no, keep keep learning the pathophys as patients come in and as you see things because learning the pathophys of trauma, of heart attacks, of something is going to help make grasping traumatic experiences much easier than simply just saying, "Oh my God, they're they're gone," and then trying to accept that because accepting that is very hard. But if you learn about it, and you keep delving into, keep asking questions. You're not only going to make yourself a better nurse, a better clinician, but every time something happens, you're going to be less inclined to have a traumatic experience and, like, you know, not be that um, 
that nurse that says, peace out nursing in like a couple years, you know? Yeah, to what Nicole's saying, it almost is that when you get into the, the books side of things, they're really the path of phys, you kind of help build a wall there to help isolate portions of the of what happens to that person into a clinical perspective. So it becomes less of a person to a degree. It becomes more of a case study, for lack of better terms. And it's not that you're demeaning the person's personness, you know, or their individuality. You're still respecting them for who they are as a person, but it kind of helps make that little piece um, a little more less painful for you to help you cope better. Um, I'm still, I can still think about it. I was a little kid. Um, my sister was about two or three years old. Um, my dad had built a deck when we were, when I was even young, uh, about that age. And it was basically the giant deck was the length of the house, but it was a giant playpen. Um, like every, like, there was fencing all around, like you couldn't climb on anything. All, there was like four points where you can walk off the deck. All of them had gates and everything. So it was like a giant playpen, you know, you could put like 30,000 toddlers in there and nobody's escaping. It was well built. But I remember my sister falling, I can still picture too, on her little tricycle off the edge, hitting the concrete and cutting her face and bleeding and me feeling like nauseous about that. I was maybe six, eight years old. Um, that, that's right. Maybe even up as old as 10. And that was like kind of like mortifying. But then to see a patient coming in in full cardiac arrest, um, a trauma arrest too, those are always the most gruesome. You know, I was able to process that very differently because you don't have that, you kind of isolate that personal piece of it out of the situation and you only focus in on that immediate care of the patient and the clinical piece of it. It's not the end all be all. It's not gonna make you not feel anything, but it kind of makes it a little bit easier. It's not like you're losing a loved one. It's kind of a, it's a, almost like it's a coping mechanism to deal with that. And there's many other exciting times and I can tell you stories that are probably better off, done off Zoom um, of things you'll see in, here in the ER. Um, nothing surprises me anymore. <laughs> it, it really does take a lot to um, get a rise out of my brow from that. Before I, before I continue on, Caitlin, do you have any, any questions for Kevin at all? Um, I was going to ask about me more about your, like, are you currently doing a research project right now or is that not your role anymore? Uh, so I currently have um, six trials underneath me that I'm doing um, with some support to my team. Um, in the manager's role, I kind of have a, kind of have to give up on some of those things. There's lots of cool little toys and that are coming in and you want to be a part of all of it, but you have to kind of let somebody else one play the toys as well, have their, um, you know, sharing is caring, so they need to have their fair share. Um, but there's no way I could do my manager job as well as the full-time research coordination. So I still do have a piece of it there. Um, I, what I can do and what I'm, or what I should be doing versus what I can do are two different. There's, you know, a day's not 80 hours long, so I can't do everything. Um, so I do have some trials, Still. So I do get to have my own playtime. Um, I get very excited for it. Um, but we do have, a, so I personally do have a, a fair number, not nearly as many as my staff, but that just, I have other responsibilities as well that I do for them that 
someone's got to do and not everybody should be doing it just one person should do it and it's kind of sometimes you need to back up and look at the big picture and that's kind of what my job is in many respects is looking at the big picture and you know figuring out what our next moves are but i will say that kevin has been involved in research projects in certain settings so he led an entire I think, project around our uniforms in terms of an evidence-based um you know like way of going about them and then also journal club he was key in starting that process for um, the hospital in terms of nursing discussing levels of evidence so those are two big like really big things that kevin's been able to lead um and I think that that is unique. It's not necessarily things that like I have done. Like I do more like quality improvement stuff or like find out if things are true or not true when I do certain projects. Uh, but Kevin's been more of a longitudinal I think, um, person in terms of the length of the study or the length of the project. So the whole uniform thing, we don't have to get into that. But I do think that Kevin has uh, something unique to, to teach you guys in terms of what levels of evidence mean. I believe that you will see this no matter where you work, hopefully you do anyway. If you don't see it, it is definitely something to introduce to your healthcare system, healthcare organization, as well as a defined um, model of nursing research and EVP, because it's a good way of asking questions and challenging assumptions and having a healthy skepticism that says, I think it's this way, but I'm not really sure and I wanna prove it, but how do I do that? And that's the thing where Kevin's gonna help introduce those levels of evidence so that you know how to appreciate that research and not just like from the book that you probably stuck your head in the, these past couple semesters and are like I don't even know what this means so without further ado Kevin take it away sure um the see, levels of evidence is kind of like a, a ranking scale of the quality of the information you're looking at um you know, the top tier of clinical research or any research I should say is you know is the randomized uh, controlled trial where you're randomizing someone to something, one of two or more um, interventions, and then kind of determining from there. Now we kind of see that as like the the top of the pyramid, but I would go a little bit farther and say on top of that little point, there's a spot there that's the um, meta-analysis where you're looking at multiple randomized clinical trials and kind of pulling data together. So you're not just relying on one set of data points, one trials, um, or one project's information. You're kind of getting from multiple points. It's something that's really, it's very, it's very hard to do, I'm not gonna lie. Um, you end up looking at like thousands of articles and trials and you kind of piece their data together. And then you kind of look at, you know, are we looking at the same exact things? If you're looking at purple ducks, well, looking at a study about orange rabbits is not gonna get you to an answer. Yeah, you're talking about what kind of food they like, but it's not gonna get you there. Um, it's not quite the same. You know, looking at, um, you know, more specifically like in heart failure, looking at one heart failure population is great. Looking at multiple groups is even better. But if one group is generic, all heart failure, all comers, but another one specifically looking at diabetics who have heart failure or uh, peripartum heart failure, um, cardiomyopathy, it's going to have a slightly different tone to it because it's not all comers. It's kind of a very specialized group. Um, expert opinions are very beneficial. That's kind of how a lot of things kind of get started. I have an idea. I have a wealth of clinical knowledge. I think if I do X on group B, 
I should get M, whatever that may be. So it's kind of, so I'm sure you may have learned in your research class, the PICO question. Everybody likes to harp on that, but it's so valuable to understanding why you're doing what you're doing. Who, what, when, where, why, what of your doing right there in one sentence kind of gathers, is this really what I'm looking for? Is this giving me the information I need? You know, at a certain point, um, to use the whole COVID situation, when things first kind of got started, really all we had was expert opinions. We kind of knew what these highly contagious um, viruses can do. We know how to, generally speaking, what infection control looks like. Let's implement this. So it's been kind of a giant guessing game. And I'm not going to get into the politics of things, but there was the ideas of, you know, hydroxychloroquine, it's an anti-malarial drug. Maybe that's going to give us benefit. Um, we had uh, um, recidivir um, that was kind of pulled out and that was kind of scrapped after a, a bowl of trying to see if that was going to be of any value. <clears throat> Not all viruses are created equal, but it was in the same family. So, you know, we'll, only time will tell if that's really the best option. You know, it's a point to start from. But to go out there saying, oh, we're going to give everybody hydroxychloroquine. We're going to see if that works for them. Let's do it. Um, that's really not the way, you know, to say you're not building guidelines off of expert opinion. It's the clinical trials are going to really give us the true information. Um, we're looking on um, doing a study, um, a uh, uh, a registry looking at um, lipids and patients who've had, who've died or were, were, were hospitalized with COVID-19 and looking at their outcomes. Is, does having high cholesterol, hyperlipidemia, lead them towards more negative outcomes than if they didn't have it? You know, it might, is it a part, then, you know, once we kind of figure that out, then it's kind of looking at the bigger picture. Well, what does it say about everybody that was hospitalized and you know, discharge versus those that were never um, admitted because they were fine looking at, you know, what does that all really look like? And it's, you kind of have to stop and see what that looks like. You know, and that's kind of more the, you know, case cohort kind of a look, look at patients, you know, case studies, looking at what happens to these individuals. You kind of get a base knowledge from there. You're not looking at, you know, well, hey, we don't know what to do yet, so let's do something. Expert opinion where these case cohorts are hey, we kind of see that there's these patients that have had high cholesterol and they do really poor or they do just as fine. So there may be nothing there, but maybe there is something there. You know, I just saw today that um, giving patients anticoagulants um, who have COVID-19 improves outcomes, but which ones are better? Warfarin versus the NOAX? We don't know. So you kind of look and see what that looks like first. You have some kind of premise of an idea. Well, then you do your randomized control trial you know, the idea is we can honestly say we don't know what's better. Therefore, let's try and see what is better. And that gives you your randomized control, which then gives you better information to make decisions on. And it's not just one hospital giving data saying, yep, drug A is going to be the cure-all or, you know, it's going to reduce your mortality. It's multiple groups doing it and being able to, you know, have that same similar uh, outcome from multiple groups. So, Multi-center trials are way better, more powerful than single-center trials because you have a bigger pool. Maybe there is something about that, you know, being in central Pennsylvania versus eastern Texas versus southern Florida that will make outcomes differently. 
because the quote unquote something in the water that makes a difference. You know, it's genetics that kind of makes a difference. Um, and the overall, you know, the environment you live in can be totally affecting things. So that's why it's nice to have a big um, heterogeneity of multiple locations kind of feeding into the trial. Right now, we're just looking at a few centers, putting in data and seeing what that looks like. You know, just those that have been hospitalized. Next steps will be looking at those that weren't hospitalized, you know, looking at those, what that all looks like. So it's, it's important to understand the quality of what you're reading. I think everybody can attest, just turning on the television or looking on your news apps, you're inundated with just tons of information. And it's hard to process, well, what is it? So that idea of stepping back and like, what am I reading? You know, am I reading, you know, randomized control trial? Or am I looking at a cohort trial? Or am I just looking at expert opinions and people just, you know, they have their freedom of speech and they're gonna say what they want to and give, you know, two shits to um, what any kind of facts are. So that's kind of where, you know, in general and in, you know, as a nurse and in general life of understanding what this information is and kind of pulling it apart and seeing, you know, where the real truth is and what level of emphasis I should give this and my decision-making. And, you know, if you do go to an institution or a healthcare system where they don't have evidence-based practice, you know, readily available, ask about it. You know, if they don't have it, then there's an opportunity for you to, you know, implement that into your practice. You know, are you truly doing what's best for your patients? If your, your best intentions are there, but are you truly doing what's best practices, what's been shown to give you the best outcomes? I think that's also a good full circle point to make because in the beginning you described how you were put on um, this council and then you fixed policies, but then your own sort of internal policy was you need something nice to say. You can't just complain about something, right? And the same rings true for if you have a problem, you can't just complain about it. You have to put in the work and do the work and then provide the rationale as to why the work is needed, number one. Number two, what have you found that supports your need for the work? And number three, what are you going to do about it to change your work that you want to make better or change for the good of A, B, and C? So that's, I think, where the first step of EVP comes in and the first step of maybe quality improvement comes in is that you have that, that healthy question and really understanding when you have to do a lit review because you have to, you have to do it until like you can have your eyeballs go sideways and all the ways and your head hurts and you just want to like not do it anymore. But it's got to be that way because if you don't have all of the viewpoints and all of the data in front of you, you're not going to help your PICO question move forward to the next phase of now we have the PICO question. Now we have the um, literature review done. Now we can formulate a project or change practice, or conduct research. And the research part, you know, happens with our PhD level guys and girls. Um, and everything else kind of can happen under, with, with so, sometimes with a watchful eye, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a PI, like they have to be the PI and they have to mentor you. And then you can do the research underneath them or the QI or the EVP, but you still have somebody look out for you so that you can make your, your research really resonate with everybody. They're the people that overlook to see you because number one, they know what they're doing. But number two, a team builds better projects than an individual does. And that's something that I learned 
pretty early on when I did my EBD project a very long time ago, and certainly Kevin has helped me with that too, and sort of formulate healthy questioning and formulate why we do this stuff the way we do it. Because forever, I was like, I hate ego questions. Like, what's, what's the point of ego question? <laughs> I, just I just didn't like it, right? Literally two things. But then you need that you know, whole, whole subset because it's really going to help you to answer your question. So I'm not sure if if I told my group this or if it was last semester's group or whoever, but the best way that you can solve a problem is to spend about 95% of your time planning that problem out. Plan that problem. Find out everything you need to know because 5% of your time is going to be dedicated to actually solving the problem. If you plan and plan and plan and plan and plan, you're going to put enough plans in place that you're pretty much going to be fail-proof. That when you do move into a project phase of your idea, of your EVP or something, that it's just going to go much smoother. You're going to have less bumps in the road, or as my least favorite term, barriers. Kevin knows all about that. <laughs> but you're like, you're going to have so many, so many less. I can't even speak, speak the grammar. It's fine. So much less of that that you're going to find yourself having this this nice pathway, and you're going to spend a tremendous amount of time being frustrated at this the first time you do it. By the second, third time you do it going to go by so much easier. Like I'll never forget the first time I filled out one of these IRB forms and it was like 45 pages long, it felt like, and they wanted to know every single thing about your project and where you're going to store the data, how you're going to use the data, where's it going to be 10 years from now? Um, what kind of project is this? Who are your people that are overseeing you? You know, all these questions that you had described the same thing 29 times, it felt like. But once I did that, and then once I did it the right way, because it took a while, the next couple times were like a cakewalk. I could then identify, okay, this is what the IRB is going to ask me. And by the way, I, I speak at the IRB. The IRB is Institutional Review Board. Most hospitals have one. Not every hospital has one. Uh, but most hospitals, if they do do research, should have an affiliate IRB if they're not if they don't have their own. And the IRB is super helpful because even if you're just doing a QI project, an EVP project, you know, something simple or something you might think is simple, having an IRB exempt status, you know, as not research is still very important when you go and publish this stuff, when you go put a post together, when you go and, and you know, you wanna be a celebrity of nursing, I mean, why not? Um, that's still really important because people are going to look at that and be like, oh, that's, they went through a valid process of how to go about this stuff. They, they didn't just like put this together, you know, on Saturday and say, hey, it's a good idea. You know, they actually went through a process peer reviewed, which is a huge term that I, love, that I love using right now. It's peer reviewed and it's a stamp of approval. And that's one of the most important things that you can do. So once all that's said and done and you get, and you, and you go through the, the, what I call the, the torture zone, the first time you're going to do this, it's a lot easier to do it again and again and again and again. And then you can help people do it. So I've, I've helped coworkers go through the process too, which is nice. Yeah, yeah you really have a really good point about the whole peer review um, in the context of both the IRB and just generally speaking. Um, the IRB can be at times a pain in the side, but their sole responsibility is to ensure that we're not exposing any Buddy, to any kind of unnecessary risk. Mm 
um, and you may just be doing a chart review, but there's still that issue of privacy and confidentiality and what are you truly doing with it? And so, yeah, they do want to know where you're storing your data because if you're going to have it on, you know, notebooks that are just going to be thrown around and it can be easily lost, one, it kind of invalidates the integrity of the data and it can be easily lost, tampered with, or, you know, gotten out there and you could unintentionally expose patient data, you know, and violate someone's privacy and confidentiality. Um, and that's the same thing with, uh, you know, when you're reading journal articles, trying to further your knowledge. The idea of, you know, there's definitely peer-reviewed articles, um, journals out there, uh, you know, getting information off of JAMA or Jack, uh, Journal of the American Medical Association, and then Journal of the American uh, uh, College of Cardiology. They were all peer-reviewed. Um, applied clinical research where I had my article published. That was peer reviewed. Um, you got feedback from the uh, reviewers to you know really kind of clean up the article, but you're getting peer reviews through the entire course of you know someone's challenging you on all your bits and pieces to ensure that you really do have the best project possible. So when you when you're all said and done, you have information that's worth sharing. It may not be the answer you want to share with everybody, but at the end you learn something that's worth sharing because. Why repeat the same study six times expecting something different? That's a definition of stupidity. So that whole idea of peer review is also important when you're reviewing articles. You've kind of built that up going in, and then you, you know, you want to make sure the article you're getting is peer reviewed as well. Um, so many articles that are self-published or non, you know, are published for profit aren't always the highest quality of data. There's, you know, or the information isn't as relevant. It's just someone trying to get their name out there to you know build their resume. You know, sometimes there's good stuff that needs to be published, but the venue may not be the right time. And, you know, that kind of stinks that you have to kind of wait your turn for that to come up. And that's not to say there's not been literature published in, you know, peer-reviewed articles that have later been retracted. The whole anti-vaxxer um, issue was the, a similar case. You know, that person had lots of literature published in peer-reviewed uh, journals, but that was something who milked the system and, you know, ultimately had all of their articles uh, retracted and lost medical license, came and practice medicine. So yeah, you can try to, someone will sneak something by, but inevitably it gets pulled and the data gets, usually gets, it gets tossed and hopefully doesn't affect anybody downstream, but definitely can hurt other people's work that's been done already. And that's kind of why it's important to have that kind of a, from the get-go, is having other people working with you yeah, you have to share the accolades, but it also helps make sure you have a better project the entire way through and you kind of have something that's worth sharing about. And you didn't have to redo it 65 times in your course of uh, execution. You've kind of worked it out in the beginning. That planning is so important. Um, like Nicole said, 95% of the project needs to be in that planning phase because you want to kind of work through all the possibilities of where is this project going to fail and why is it going to fail and what can I do now to mitigate those failures? This way, when you finally have something that's when you're done, it's actually worth publishing and not say, I made 65 changes. I started off looking at X, but now I looked at A, B, C, D, and E plus X. Your data is kind of a mess. You don't know what to do with anything. You have a lot of information, but nothing to make from it. Speaking of that, you might find that there's an A, B, C, D, and E um, within your journey, even after all the planning, 
those might be future questions to ask in like the discussions point of your project phase. And it's not saying that it's, that it's not valid, but you don't want to go down the rabbit hole of, of those things. Those should just be like sub notes of like, yeah, I found this stuff. I don't know what to do with it, but I'm going to put in discussion. Maybe someone else can do something with it. And that's where the inquiry of, of research starts and the inquiry of EVP and like how to like really generate things that will last and last and last and last and can be reproducible, which is like the biggest thing in the world to do. Yeah, and so that um, a few semesters ago, I took one of my classes I took was designing clinical trials. And in the course of the last 25 years, the number of data points co collected on average from a clinical trial has gone from like 60s to 80s, well up into the high 200s into the 300s. So we're collecting almost twice as much data as we did previously, but so much of that data is not analyzable. Like you can kind of look at it and it gives you something to look at. You can, I mean, you can obviously see the data, and you can, but there's nothing to make any kind of association. There's no causality there. There's just data points because it's may not, the study may not be statistically powered for what you're looking at. And that's, I know it's people's like least favorite word is saying statistics, but it kind of gives you a reference point of saying, and what am I looking at? What do I need to see? to get that data point to show me something. What's my point of reference? It's gonna show a change. And it may be to get something that's, you know, a questionnaire or a wearable device to give you data. You may need to enroll 10,000 more patients to have data points to show you some kind of change to make that data point meaningful. And, you know, sometimes people try to collect too much and try to complicate it. You know, they make it a horse into a camel keep adding things on top, making it, you know, the hump, um, or calling it a Christmas tree, keep on throwing ornaments on until a thing falls over. That just gives you this very gaudy, lots of stuff. And at the end of the day, you don't know what to make of it. It's just kind of like, it's all there, but we got it up, but we don't know what to make of it. So it's good to say. Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, the point is like, if you kind of discuss that in your discussion, hey, we have these extra, I mean, you should have some extra data points. You may find something, you may not, but you say, hey, we saw this, this is worth looking into further. And saying, you know, you kind of make that kind of like tease you out there for next person to say, you know what, that sounds really interesting. Let me collaborate with you. I think we can get more patients into this if we kind of do X, Y, and Z and then you make new friends. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of like the body Christmas tree is exactly like the data that people try to compare in terms of like the deaths, right? So this is a whole thing that I've seen is like, the deaths from the flu and the deaths from COVID and the deaths from the stroke and the deaths from cancer and the deaths from this. And they all want it to be the same thing. And it's not the same thing because there's so many unique details within that, that that's the gaudy Christmas tree. That's what you're looking at because you can't compare these things. It's there, we have it, but it's not necessarily going to tell us a story about why these deaths actually happen. Just that the deaths are there and they may not even like be in comparison because you might not be looking at the data the best way. I think there was a New York Times article that dispelled that, but um, I won't go into that right now. Um, Kaylee, do you have any, any questions or comments as we continue our journey here? Um, Kevin, anything else that you would like to discuss? I mean, I can talk for hours. <laughs> I can do it. <laughs> so, we, can um, we can literally talk like a, a whole a whole nursing shift on this process and things 
as well. Yeah, I think that just the kind of the general takeaways I'd say is research is not a four letter word that should, you know, you kind of take the class and get it out of your way. It really is a journey of collaboration with others. And, you know, there's something everybody's passionate about. And there's definitely questions that are worth being asked. Um, and 90% of the time is just asking the question why is so valuable to having that conversation of why do we do it this way? Well, that's the way we've always done it. Wrong answer. If that's your every year response, flag on the play, hit the timeout button, and let's kind of re-examine how we can improve ourselves. Yeah. Um, I think I think that's a good point. I think you drive a good point when so they so we learn about this stuff, but oftentimes, at least in my expert program, I'm going back a couple years, um, it statistics was so dry. It, there was no context to it. There was no learning about what this even mean or how to actually form a question that like I cared about. There wasn't anyone that was creating some sort of like juiciness to it where I'm like, you know, yes, like I really want to like learn this stuff later and, you know, do a project with it. Because when, when I had an idea and someone told me we were going to have to do like the research aspect of it, I was like, like, that doesn't sound, that doesn't sound good, you know, because I, I still had this vision in my head that research and EVP was just so boring. It's, and it's not boring. It's like, it's like the ground layer of how everything else in your hospital with nursing education at the top is, is founded upon, right? And so that's, that's what, I, that's, I, I think I hope that changes in the future. I'm not sure how, how they teach research um, where my students are, but I hope it changes because I know a lot of a lot of them want to probably do some sort of project or interested in research, but either a they're too afraid to ask how the heck to do it. B they're a little bit too busy, right? With clinicals and stuff. There's really not a period to pause and say, you know what, I want to do A, B, and C. But also C, I'm holding up number three. This is C. It's great. Um, we don't do enough to engage student nurses to do EBPQI with us. You know what I mean? Like, I'm speaking like Kevin here because like we've been on a council that supports research and yes, we invite students to that council, but there's not a way of like, of asking students to be a part of that process, which I think is super important, right? Because that helps get their out there and that helps get their experience, you know, in, in a much different way of research, nursing research. And I think it helps them ask questions that, if they don't have a nursing research program at their hospital or or a, a a model of nursing research, they're probably not going to answer like ask those questions, right? They're, they're going to be like, "Well, they don't have it, so whatever." I don't know who to ask them to, or how to go ask them. So I think having that like mixed in with that clinical experience would be like amazing, in my opinion. Yeah, amazing. one of the suggestions I made when I, during my tenure, and it was kind of towards the end, was the idea of you know having the opportunity to have nursing students partner with the floor nurses, the direct care nurses with their EBPs. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's questions, we have plenty of questions that need to be, that people want to ask and be answered. And, you know, it creates a partnership. So um, just asking the question and figuring out what you're, even if you don't, you're in a place where you don't have all the resources, having some resources, you know, you make connections with faculty in your program saying, hey, we have this question. I don't have the greatest amount of resources. Is it possible for what, 
for you know the research student, you know, students in their research program to help me out here. And I'll help them out, but let's you know, partner up or make a project worth something. Um, they'll jump on that fact. You know, the name of the game in, in healthcare and nursing is collaboration. Uh, it's not just one person taking care of patients, it's the whole team and you have to collaborate. You have people doing the same thing independent of each other. You have no communication and you don't have any true advancement. When you have that true, clear, concise communication between all uh, disciplines, things start moving miraculously faster. Um, and same thing will happen with research is that collaboration, get the right resources available to you and you can move forward. You have someone who you know needs to tick off the boxes for their program and you wanna improve your care in your facility or your unit well you're kind of doing double duty and when you're all said and done hopefully it becomes a very positive experience for the student as well as yourself that you've kind of created this you know framework for you know further collaboration more evidence-based practice i would totally agree all right i think i think that about wraps it up if that's if that's all we have to say. i mean kevin and i could talk for hours but still Kevin, thank you so much for being a part of our virtual clinical.